And hello again, I'm John Ray on the Price and Value Journey. And I want to welcome Bill McDermott to the show. Bill is here to chat about the financial side of a professional services firm. Just a little background on Bill. Bill is the founder and CEO of McDermott Financial Solutions. He serves as a profitability coach to his clients, which include a lot of professional services firms. When business owners want to increase their profitability and they don't have the expertise to know where to start or what to do, Bill leverages his his talents, his knowledge, and his relationships from 32 years as a banker. Somehow he made 32 years. (laughs) Well, I'm going to have to ask him how he did that (laughs) to, to identify the hurdles that get in the way and create a plan to deliver profitability that his clients never thought possible. Uh, Bill also serves as a treasurer for the Atlanta Executive Forum. He's previously held positions as a board member for the Kennesaw State University Entrepreneurship Center and the Gwinnett Habitat for Humanity uh, chapter, and he has uh, been treasurer for CEO NetWeavers. He's a graduate of Wake Forest University, go Demon Deacons, and uh, he and his his wife Martha uh, are just about to celebrate Anniversary number 45, congratulations on that, Bill. And just, I have to plug his podcast, uh, Profit Sense with Bill McDermott, uh, coming up on three years, right, Bill? It is, uh, and it's a pleasure to be here, John. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So let's talk about, um, I want to give a little background on you. And and uh, you spent three decades as a banker. How, uh, How did I survive? Well... <laughs> You could you could certainly you could certainly answer that question, but I guess how did you come to the choice of the practice that you started? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I'll give you the short version of a longer story. So uh, it was April of two thousand nine. Uh, we had just entered the Great Recession. We were in a banking crisis, and the CEO of the bank that I was working for at the time walked in my office. It was actually on my wife's birthday. And he said, Bill, you're doing a great job, but we've got to cut costs. You were the last one in, so you're the first one out. Uh, We're eliminating your position, and I was done. And so we had two daughters in college. I had to figure out a way to earn an income. So first thing I did was uh, pray, Mm -hmm. and I said, okay, you've closed a door. Mm -hmm. open a window and would you mind putting a little neon around it for me (laughs) so so I could see it? Right. But – All kidding aside, in 32 years of banking, I saw that business owners were usually great salespeople Mm. or great operations people. Mm -hmm. Where they struggled was in the area of financial management. Uh, They didn't learn it in school. And when you're the owner of the business, there's no on-the-job training because the buck stops with you. So part of my why is because I saw business owners struggle with financial management, I said, can I launch a business leveraging my expertise and knowledge in banking and help business owners become better financial managers? So uh, the business started with that in mind. And uh, my goal is to really hopefully leave a legacy of making business owners better financial managers in their business. And you just celebrated a business anniversary. Speaking of anniversaries. Yeah. So uh, uh, April was 13 years. So uh yeah, and still going strong. Congra- so. Congratulations. Yeah, thank that's, you so much. That's awesome. Um, I think a lot of 
professional services practitioners, they get into business and then they pivot along the way, not pandemic related pivot, but that they, their business morphs naturally. Sure. Yours has morphed along the way. Why don't you explain that and kind of the decision points around that? Yeah. So uh, when you're in the middle of a banking crisis, a lot of businesses are losing money. And so I actually started negotiating workout plans on behalf of uh, the business owner with their bank. You know, who better to negotiate a problem loan, Mm -hmm. uh, a banker with another banker. Right. And so successfully did that for several years. Uh, I had one client uh, that I actually worked with for three years. We started with $16 million in debt, uh, worked that down to a million. And actually, uh, the bank drew a line in the sand, said, we're not renewing anymore, forced us into bankruptcy. And the bank eventually settled for 10 cents on the dollar. So we got a million dollars for 100000 and wow. basically negotiated out. So that's really how I started. Mm-hmm. When you negotiate a problem for a business owner, you become on the team because you two have been through it together. And so what then happened is I had business owners asking me to come out and sit with them and go through their monthly financials. Well, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, <laughs> But pretty soon I figured out, you know, a monthly meeting going over financial performance with the business owner, Mm. I'm coaching them how to be better. Mm -hmm. And so what morphed is is doing workout loans uh, actually became a practice where I'm coaching business owners on how to be better financial managers. And then probably sandwiched between that is I have some of my clients want to leverage my banking expertise And so I would help them find financing Mm -hmm. Uh, if they were buying a building, if they were getting a large piece of equipment, uh, maybe that business owner who thinks they need a line of credit. By the way, best time to borrow money from a bank is when you don't need it. (laughs) And uh, so anyway, that's maybe even another podcast for another day. Right. When when you don't need to hire Bill McDermott, right? (laughs) I mean, you get the folks that really need that that financing, right? Yeah, exactly. And so... um, from workouts to financing and then to the profitability coach. And that's kind of been my path. Wow. So let's describe for folks that don't know what, what does a profitability coach do? You say you look at financials every month, but there's more to it than that. Yeah, there really is. So um, I'm going to start by saying that a profitability coach uh, first speaks the language of business. Uh, Warren Buffett was quoted as saying, accounting is the language of business. And you, as a business owner, not only need to learn how to speak it, but how to become fluent. And those uh, uh, that language actually comes out in the form of reports, balance sheet, profit and loss statement, cash flow statement. Uh, where I help a business owner is most business owners understand their profit and loss statement. They generally don't look at their balance sheet. And they hardly ever look at their cash flow statement. And so what a profitability coach does is analyzes the trends in the business, helping that business owner see those trends, asking questions about what might be driving those trends, and then helping them make decisions. But probably the biggest thing, John, is if you own your own business, you're not accountable to anybody. And so part of what a profitability coach really does, or any business coach for that matter, is holds that business owner accountable 
uh, for not only the dreams that they have, because those dreams usually convert to goals and those Mm -hmm. goals convert to plans. But somewhere along the way, it's kind of like, you know, all of us want to lose weight January 1. And so the gyms and the exercise places fill up for about two weeks. (laughs) That's right. But after about the first two weeks, you know, they're done. Well, nobody's holding them accountable. Mm -hmm. So part of what a profitability coach does is not only help them become better financial managers, but holds them accountable to what their dreams and their plans and their goals are. So really, it sounds like your knowledge of the of the of the financials, how to read the financials, and the business owner's knowledge of the business and what's going on day to day, meet essentially, right? That's, that's exactly right. Because you know, part of that three decades in banking, I literally looked at thousands of financial statements because mm-hmm. I had to look at financial statements to determine whether that business owner could borrow money or not, and so. The ability to interpret those financials helped me uh, become trained in helping that business owner. So you're absolutely right. Uh, Generally, if a business wants to improve, there are really about five things that they need to look at. Uh, There's either a people aspect of their business. There's a strategy aspect. There's an execution issue. uh, There's a process issue or there's a money issue. And so people, process, strategy, execution, and cash are usually things that business owners need to pay attention to in order to be successful. So for those that don't know, what, what's the difference between a profitability coach and a fractional CFO? And, and when do you bring these different roles in or are they different? Uh, They're absolutely different. So uh, right now I have a very successful um, uh, client who has basically managed the financial aspect of their business for 30 years. Uh, He still wants to keep me as a coach, but he doesn't want to do financial management anymore. So he has hired a part-time CFO to come in and run the business because having someone full-time first, it's not that big a job and he doesn't want to pay $200,000 a year, whatever a CFO gets these days. So you, you want to hire a part-time CFO if you just don't want to have to be involved in the financial management of the business. Uh, You want a part-time CFO uh, or if you want to do that yourself, uh, you can, uh, but again, you better be able to speak the, the language. Now, actually I will tell you, I coach a lot of business owners that have a part-time CFO Mm. and primarily, you know, a lot of that CFO role is about accounting. You know, they make sure that they have uh, all the debits and credits entered into QuickBooks or whatever accounting software is used. Uh, They're able to generate the reports, but generally uh, everything that that part-time CFO does is really about the past because accounting is, is accounting for the past. Doesn't really have much to do with the present or the future. Mm -hmm. So kind of where they leave off is where I pick up and we start talking about, okay, what are, you know, what are your goals for this year or this quarter? Uh, And where are you in relation to getting, getting those goals accomplished and basically working together with them, holding them accountable to, to what they want to do for the future not necessarily focusing on the past. So you can have both, mm-hmm. uh, but there is a difference. You know, most of the time the part-time CFO is directly responsible, involved with financial management, but that CFO doesn't really hold the business owner accountable to what their goals and dreams are. 
And so that's really what I've been doing as a profitability coach, helping them achieve their goals and dreams and become more profitable. Do you find you can be in those cases a little more um, maybe direct is the word <laughs> with <laughs> with the business owner, more of their uh, uh, mother-in-law? Maybe that's a bad metaphor, but uh, you you can be a little tougher. Yeah, I think when needed, uh, I think part of it. So, um, and, and you said direct, uh, I've had a few clients call me blunt, which (laughs) I I can be more than direct at times. Um, and I'm working on that, but, uh, no, I think, yeah, if, um, uh, if someone is paying you to, Mm -hmm. to give advice, right. Then by golly, they should take it. And I did give a lot of free advice when I was in banking, Because as I was looking at the financial statement, especially if I had to decline someone, I said, you know, look, uh, you as the business owner made $100,000 in profit, but you took out $75,000 in distributions. So, you know, you only have a fourth of what you made Mm -hmm. available to handle the growth of the firm and pay back a loan if you choose to borrow. Right. And so just little things like that. Uh, are the things that uh, that I've that I've done, but yeah, sometimes you do have to be direct. And again, if I'm holding someone accountable by being nice, uh, I'm not really helping them. Yeah, for sure. So, but, I mean, this show's designed for solo, small firm, to some degree, medium sized firm, professional services providers. Let's talk about. The, the needs here. I mean, at what point do you think a, a solo uh, firm, a solopreneur needs to hire a profitability coach? Yeah, that's a great question. And I want to be uh, respectful. There are a lot of people out there uh, that believe in doing it themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a totally valid way. Uh, but it's interesting. There's a guy by the name of, uh, of uh, Doug Tatum, uh, Tatum CFO, who wrote a book titled No Man's Land. And that book was really about his experience as being a CFO where growing companies fail. Uh, and he talks about the five M's, John. So to your question, when do you feel like you should hire a profitability coach? One of the M's that he mentioned is momentum. Mm. If your business has lost momentum, if your rate of sales uh, is either decreasing flat or not increasing in, in uh, proportion to what you're expecting, you might want to hire a coach. Right. Another thing is marketing. Marketing is the number one weakness in a growing firm. And so if you're not, if you're not properly identifying your brand, uh, to your point about value, you know, if you're not sure of your value in the marketplace, Hmm. uh, you might need some, some help there. Uh, so momentum, marketing, management, growing firms, growth, it, it, makes businesses more complex. And so you may have management issues that you need to address. Um, fourth M is money. You know, when, when you're growing, as you know, growth always requires cash. Right. And uh, if you have this big, crazy number in accounts receivable and you're complaining about a low bank account, well, by golly, then get on the phone and collect some of those past dues. So um, marketing, momentum, management, money, trying to remember what the, uh, what the fifth one was, and, and it escapes me right now. But in essence, I would think that you would hire a coach if you find yourself uh, not hitting on all cylinders in some of those things. Right, right. 
so I'm curious about the, 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 it sounds like the biggest mistake. You just answered the question I was about to ask that the biggest mistake solopreneurs make is not hiring outside help fast enough. Yeah. And so part of, <laughs> part of my questions is, uh, you know, cause I want to be sure that, uh, the, particular person that I'm talking to is, is really interested. Mm -hmm. And so I might ask them, I said, look, if you're in your car and you're lost, do you keep driving or do you stop and ask for directions? And the people that are probably going to keep driving kind of identify themselves as I'm kind of a do it yourselfer. by golly, I don't really need to stop and ask for help, but those that ask for help, uh, I want to, you know, I want to help them. So, I'm thinking of a, uh, so I worked with a professional services practice for about three years. Uh, when I started with that practice, a lot of their receivables were reimbursements uh, from uh, insurance companies. And what I saw was a huge amount of accounts receivable, and a lot of them were 60 or 90 days outstanding. Mm. You know, insurance companies are horrible at paying claims. <laughs> You know, they're paid to hold on to their money, not not pay it back to the service providers. Right. And so we were able to devise a plan where she had a person in her uh, practice that was accountable for making sure those receivables were collected. Well, then this practice also had a scheduler. And this firm, it had three locations, had 27 um, professional providers, and but they weren't maximizing their their schedule. And so there was a lot of holes, a lot of time that was billable time that was lost. And so together we kind of crafted a scheme that not only helped collections, but also helped increase appointments. And by the way, we also talking about, uh, you know, can we increase rates for reimbursements to the insurance companies? And the answer is yes, uh, because a 1% increase in your price is about an eight to a 10% increase in your bottom line. So mm. talking about price value journey, right. a lot of that is just learning that raising prices is an immediate direct hit to your bottom line. But long story short, uh, we were able to increase the revenue over a two year period of time in this professional practice, 64%. Mm. So it was about 32% a year. And we took about a hundred thousand dollars out of the accounts receivable put that into cash. So not only did they have more profit, but they also had more cash to boot. So uh, this, this firm had been limping along for a year. Uh, I was introduced to them by their CPA. Uh, we were able to come in and help them and they're continuing to, to thrive to this day. So you brought up pricing, so I can't, uh, forgive me, but I, I can't help going down, going down that road. That's, that's, yeah, let's, let's do that. So do you find, I mean, my contention is, is that the biggest problem financial or professional services providers have is their pricing. Do you agree with that? Oh, hundred percent. And yeah. and I'll tell a personal story. Okay. So when I started my business 13 years ago, I'm figuring, what do I charge? Mm. And of course, when you first start, you're not even sure you know what your value proposition is. Right. And so I said, okay, I'm going to start at this rate. And by the way, it was an hourly rate. And so by setting an hourly rate, I unintentionally 
got to the point where I was perceived as a commodity because I'm paid by the hour. Mm. There's no value there. And by the way, my experience is I actually, in the first three years, tripled my hourly rate because the first rate that I thought I was worth was woefully low. And so I had to work to the point where I had to ha- I had to find somebody to tell me that my rates were too high before I knew that I was right where Mm -hmm. I should be to begin with. Right. But the other thing is, so I I read a, I read a really good book that basically introduced me to the concept of value-based pricing. Mm -hmm. So to, to kind of use that example uh, of the professional services practice I talked about, I mean, the, amount of money that that firm paid me was probably about i'm going to say half of the profit that i delivered so essentially if you think about it they covered their cost and i gave them a 100% return on their investment yeah So the whole concept of value-based pricing was a total shift for me, John. And believe me, I I have not arrived on this journey. I'm still learning. But switching from an hourly rate to a fixed fee and doing that pricing in relation to the value that you're delivering to your client uh, makes sense. Because Mm -hmm. um, I can think of another story. Yeah, so, please. So early on, um, I was involved in a loan negotiation with a bank, and it was a big loan. Mm-hmm. And so I want to say the loan was about uh, was about two million dollars. And so I said, "Okay, if I can deliver a discount of twenty percent, four hundred thousand uh, dollars, what amount would you be willing to pay?" Five percent, so twenty thousand dollars. So we got into the negotiation with the bank. Took me an hour and a half, and I successfully negotiated twenty thousand dollars of fees for ninety minutes worth of work. So I don't know what that comes out to for an hourly rate, (laughs) but I delivered the value and got paid a percentage. Right, and so the concept in my practice that I've implemented but i'm still figuring out is is price based on the value that you're creating uh for your client don't don't price on an hourly rate if if you can now there's some practices that are comfortable with with hourly pricing and i'm not saying they shouldn't do that um but they might be leaving money on the table that could be theirs instead of uh instead of someone else's you said that they're in in when you were talking about that first example, that when you were pricing hourly, you were regarded as a commodity. Explain more on that. Say more on that. Yeah. So I think, um, I'm going to use a, uh, I'm going to use an analogy and hopefully explain in the meantime, uh, everybody shops at Walmart, Walmart, struggles with customer service because they're so big. Uh, But you know that you can go into Walmart and you can get the lowest price. And if there's no 
supply chain disruption, they'll have it in stock. So, but still Walmart doesn't really add value because there's no one there to help you. And if you wait in the checkout line, you're probably going to wait a long time Mm. versus Ace Hardware. I go into Ace Hardware. Ace Hardware has everything. And when you walk in the front door, there's someone there at the door that's going to greet you and says, sir, what can I, what can I help you with? And I say, I need a 20 pound bag of bird seed. Takes me right to the aisle, right where the bird seed is. Say, look, you got three choices. These are the prices. Clients ask for this one the most. And I get service. There's value because I don't want to wander the aisles of Ace Hardware trying to find it. Uh, I want to be created by someone who knows where it is, knows what they're talking about, and I can get through the checkout line quickly. So there's value in going to Ace Hardware that I don't think you get at Walmart, in my in my personal opinion. So what I had to figure out is if I couldn't describe my value to someone, and believe me, describing my value, that's on me. Mm-hmm. If I can't accurately describe the value that I'm delivering to my clients, I default to a commodity. Because if I'm not Ace Hardware, they're going to see me as Walmart. And they're going to say, well, this is his price. Is it worth it to me to pay that? It's the difference between looking at it as a cost versus an investment too, John. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So, and just to be clear, um, and I probably should have let folks know this at the top of the show. Uh, So the professional services can be a big category, but you work with engineering firms, uh, architectural firms, uh, uh, psychiatric related firms, um, marketing agencies, uh, attorneys, uh, legal practices. What are some of the others that maybe you have? I mentioned most of them there. Most of them. Uh, I've got a uh, certainly a, a different aspect. So I have uh, actually three engineering firms. Uh, one is uh, uh, is me- is mechanical engineering. Uh, one of them is uh, civil engineering, and then I also have one that's environmental engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, several different attorney firms. Uh, some that work in the employee benefits arena. Uh, some that are litigators. Uh, I've worked with a few CPA practices. Uh, I've worked with a couple of marketing agencies. I've done work with uh, one of the top uh, interior designers in the Southeast. Uh, And so, yeah, professional services, uh, generally those professional services providers are great technicians at their craft, Mm -hmm. but they really struggle with the business aspect. Right. And so, uh, but yeah, my practice is I've worked with, uh, with solopreneurs. Uh, I've worked with firms that are, uh, anywhere from 10 people to I'd say 50 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, probably the largest firm I've worked with is a, uh, uh, a large contracting firm, uh, in, uh, in Northwest Atlanta that has about 400 people. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I really love professional services firms because generally, they're great technicians. They're great at their craft. Um, but when they were going to school, nobody taught them business. You know, business is not an undergraduate requirement to get your degree. Uh, and, right. uh, and certainly, if you don't learn it in school, then you either got to learn it 
somewhere along the way or have a coach to come in and, and help you learn it. Now you talk, you've talked quite extensively here about the importance of pricing is it. And we both know that professional services firms, they don't have inventory. They don't have, um, a lot of the same kind of capital expenditures, maybe any, uh, that a lot of other firms have. When you talk to the, your clients, are you focused mostly around pricing or are there other aspects of the, of the income statement that you hone in on? Well, so we're, we're focusing almost entirely on revenue because okay. revenue is the largest number. Right. And so any percentage increase in revenue creates the biggest, biggest change. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I would say, if you're a solopreneur out there or uh, look at what I call a revenue multiplier, some people call it a labor multiplier, uh, because essentially, uh, so an architectural practice that I'm that I'm working with right now, they have a bill rate, but then they also have a pay rate uh, for engineering work that needs to be done. And so that bill rate, of course, incorporates that that engineering cost associated with it. But the gross profit is basically what's left. Mm. And so the higher that you can charge your bill rate against that pay rate that you're paying out in engineering costs, the higher your gross profit is going to be. So what we focus on, if you have an engineering cost for an architect that's maybe $100 and you can bill that client $150, then your revenue or your labor multiplier is is one. 1.5 if I'm doing the math right because mm. 150 divided by 100 is 1.5 and so can you drive that multiplier up can you get it to 1.6 or can you get it to two and so for this particular architectural firm uh, we've actually gone from about a 2.3 revenue multiplier in two years uh, right now we're we're north of three. Oh wow and so uh, what that means in terms of gross profit is their gross profit was running probably in the mid 60s it's now up into the mid 80s john so the incremental gross profit is falling right down to their bottom line sure they're well on their way through april of making probably two-thirds of the profit that they made last year wow uh now there's some value right there that you're delivering deliver right (laughs) wow that's what a what a great story so we, we talked about solopreneurs. So let's talk about small, medium-sized professional services firms. They get to a certain size. What are some of the mistakes, that financial mistakes, that you see that firms like this make that are, that are common? Gosh, let me think about that a minute. I think first, um, customer concentrations uh, can be a little bit risky. Mm. Uh, I do have a, um, a particular... Uh, firm that I work with that is heavily concentrated in one particular client makes up about 30% of their business. Um, my rule of thumb going back to my banking days is uh, probably to the extent that you can limit your concentrations to maybe 15% of your total revenue to any one client. Um, so certainly revenue concentrations, uh, other mistakes would be, uh, Probably some mindset issues. Um, 
a lot of a lot of business owners are willing to accept uh, mediocre performance when in reality they have some self-limiting beliefs that are holding them back. And so I can certainly expand on that, but you know, a quick story is I had a I had a client uh, that I worked with who was uh, in the uh, engineering practice uh, business. He didn't really feel that he could deliver the value that he really did. And we got through that uh, to the point where he was willing to first uh, educate himself on the benefits of value-based pricing, uh, implement it, and then reap the results. So probably some of it is self-inflicted. Hmm. You know, when I started my business, I didn't know how much to charge. I had some self-limiting beliefs about what I was worth. Hmm. And so uh, I would say that would be an item. And, and then I would say um, growing a business is really all about people and processes. And so where I think uh, some solopreneurs or small to medium-sized firms make some mistakes is they either have the wrong people. And when I say wrong, I'm talking about people that don't really share the company's core values or core focus or uh, that person is in the wrong seat. Uh, they're not playing to that person's strength. Mm. Probably the the other thing, in addition to that, wrong people is documented processes. Uh, if you want to be an effective and an efficient organization, you've got to have documented processes. Because if you have uh, 15 people in your billing department and each of those 15 people has a different way that they do billing... <laughs> You got problems. Right. And, yeah. and so documented processes, and if they are documented, you need to inspect what you expect, which means making sure that the processes are being followed. So those would be the three things that really stick out. Let's talk about debt. I mean, when should a firm, as they grow, start to take on debt? You say it's when they don't need it. Um Say more on that and what, what you counseled business owners. Yeah, there. so um, get a line of credit. Uh, there are people who basically believe that I don't want to have any personal debt in my consumer, in my personal household, the way they run their household. But running a business and running a household are two different things. So um, for a line of credit, I would say one month's revenue is a is a good rule of thumb. So if you've got a $3 million company, that's a $250,000 line of credit. Don't base it out of based on last year's revenue. Base it on this year's revenue. Uh, so that would be one thing. And generally, you know, year-end financials uh, are in by January or February. Most banks uh, are going to want to see a full fiscal year, and then the most recent interim uh, in order to approve a line. But I would say that um, I have another uh, uh, business that I work with that does uh, 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 steel fabrication for construction. Mm -hmm. They have done a great job of purchasing equipment that has technology associated with it that uh, reduces their overall labor costs. They still have uh, people working uh, in their, you know, in their plant, but they have invested in equipment and technology 
to improve their operating performance. And so borrowing for a piece of equipment uh, where you find that you can increase your profit margin because of efficiency doing that. Uh, Right now, um, I've got three clients that are either building a building or buying a building. Uh, Rent is pretty expensive. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of times, depending on the requirements that you have on your building, um, you might need special electrical requirements. You might have special ceiling requirements, zoning requirements, things like that. Um, but you know, borrowing money to buy your own building versus paying rent every month is valid. Probably the most interesting thing right now is us baby boomers. We're getting ready to retire. Mm. And I've got, uh, I've got three clients, uh, that I'm working with right now that are in various stages of exiting. Mm-hmm. And of course, on my last podcast, we had, uh, uh, we had a gentleman who is in the process of ownership transition. We had a banker who came on and spoke about financing uh, those transactions. So uh, finding a financing source for your business uh, to, to sell it or buy it is something that is very much top of mind for, for business owners right now, especially if you're a baby boomer. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So does it- if you're a professional services firm, does having hard assets like real estate, owning your own building, the building you're operating in, or any other building for that matter, that's that's maybe an investment. I mean, is that is that a good way to use excess cash cash flow? So that's a great question. Uh, I'll try to answer it in a concise way. So I have a client who just on the operating performance of his business alone earns a 22% net income. Mm. I'm going to say that real estate on an annual basis does not increase 22%. So does it make sense for him to invest in an asset that is maybe going to appreciate even though he's building equity in it Mm -hmm. versus investing in his business? So investing in real estate might be a good diversification play because that way he doesn't he or she doesn't have all the all of their eggs in their company basket so it's a little bit personal choice in my Mm -hmm. view john Mm -hmm. you know there are some some business owners and i'm a big believer in diversifying your assets yeah and generally the stock of the closely held business that that solopreneur or small to medium-sized business owner has is the 800 pound gorilla on their personal financial statement so diversifying away from that and buying a building is a is certainly makes sense, um, but if you're looking at it strictly from numbers, rates of return, uh, providing cash flow, um, you know, we went through a real estate crisis in 2009. Uh, real estate values dropped 30 percent, but on the flip side, real estate's been a great asset to own for a long, long period of time. So as we wind down here, Bill, this has been great. Uh, I want to get to exit planning because you, you've started to do some exit planning mm-hmm. work for clients. Uh, give I mean, We could do a whole show on exit planning for <laughs> professional services firms, but, but give us the Cliff Notes version, if you will. I mean, what, what folks that are thinking about uh, exiting their firm, I mean, what are some of the things that they need to do? to prepare their professional services practice for it, for a change, for an exit. Yeah. So, um, 
So for the solopreneur, uh, it is a challenge primarily because generally a business owner uh, buyer is not willing to pay for what is between that solopreneur's ears. And so it is commonly said that in exit planning, the value of a business is the value minus the business owner's contribution to that value. So if I were a solopreneur and, you know, basically all of the intellectual property was in my head, Mm -hmm. it's going to be very, very hard to transfer that value to a potential purchaser. It can be done, Mm -hmm. but, but there are some challenges. Uh, but building transferable value is is important. Uh, that transferable value is basically having uh, a solid management team that can take the business after the business owner exits, having um, reliable financial statements because uh, they're paying a multiple of what the value of the business is based on those financial statements. So having reliable financial statements is important. Uh, back to an earlier comment, making sure that your revenue is not concentrated in, in any one or two places. Uh, so frankly, it's all about building transferable value. It's also about having a growth plan that a business owner purchaser could buy into. So those would be the aspects primarily. Got it. Wow, Bill, this has been great. And I can't uh, imagine there aren't some folks that listening to this uh, conversation wouldn't want to get in touch. So let's tell them how they can do that. Yeah. Oh, well, first it's been a delight to be with you. Uh, this has been a great opportunity for me as well. And so thanks for having me. They Thank can, you. they can reach me at bill at the profitability coach.net. Uh, or they can call me on my mobile number, which is seven, seven, zero five, nine, seven, three, one, three, six. And our website is the profitability coach.net. That's easy to remember, folks. Uh, Terrific. Bill McDermott, thanks so much again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, John. Absolutely. Hey, folks, just a quick reminder. If you want to see past episodes of this series or check them out, you can go to pricevaluejourney.com. We would be honored. I'd be honored if you would subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and you won't miss an episode that way. If you'd like to get in touch with me directly, ask questions, or uh, give some suggestions on topics that we ought to cover here, feel free. My email is john at johnray.co. Thank you for joining us.